Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, analyse recent losses in Russian aviation, and we talk about the shifting tectonic plates of international influence in Central Asia as Russian power erodes. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 19th of September. Day 208. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Foreign Correspondent James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. There's been still a lot of fighting up in the east. The Kharkiv front has yet to really settle down. The Russian forces retreated to the east of the Oskil River. In some parts, that does make a a satisfactory defensive line. The geography lends itself to a defensive position, in which case they've held that. And in other areas, it does not. So they have they have moved some kilometres uh, further east. So this doesn't look like a continued advance necessarily by Ukrainian forces. Although, as I say, up and down the line, there have been um, probing attacks from both sides. But we don't think the line is settling down because of uh, continued Ukrainian attacks. Attacks. We think it's because that's where the where the land necessarily lends itself to to a better defensive position. However, um, th- th- like I said, there are there are still attacks going on um, in the north and the east, uh, and in and in Kherson, We shouldn't forget. Um, and we're still in this m- largely media blackout. So the Ukrainian authorities are still not allowing. Uh, journalists up to the front line to really to really see what's going on there. Um, I've said many times I I think that's the correct decision for now. Um, not all the time I think, but but whilst this is still settling down, I think that's that's probably wise to maintain that that level of operational security. Um, I hope that doesn't continue for the for the entire war and and sort of seep into other areas of of uh, legitimate civilian concern. Uh, but we shall see about that. Um, President Zelensky has said that there would be no no let up in the fighting. That, that I think that's that's a given. I think what the the attacks of last week showed was not only was it a very smart, very well executed 
Ukrainian plan. They, they massed their forces. They did so in, in, in very good security. The Russians did not know that they had built up such a sizable force. But equally, all the things we talked about over the last few months about Russian fragility. So they are increasingly devoid of heavy uh, weapons, tanks, for example, armoured personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles. We know their training is not great. We know they are low on morale, low on food. We know their command and control system is is weak. Their leadership is is poor. So all these things together led, led to that shattering blow last week. So whether or not Ukraine now thinks, well, hey, if it's, if it's there, these are systemic things. This is unlikely to be just that military grouping to the north. This is this is systemic. So let's push somewhere else. And they and they may very well do so. But again, we don't have a clear idea of what Ukraine's able to to build up elsewhere. So whether or not they're able to push push somewhere else, we're, we're not sure. Um, Governor of uh, Luhansk region, Sergei Gaide, did say that he was expecting his quote the deoccupation of the region was not far away. I think that is. A little bit um, optimistic, understandable why he's saying it, but I, I don't see Ukraine really pushing into the Donbass anytime soon, simply because that is where Russia have have had for eight, eight years to build up some pretty extensive defensive fortifications. So they would be just as Russia experienced when they were trying to go west, they smashed themselves against a very hard Ukrainian wall. I think Ukraine might find something similar if they were to try and go east. So I don't. I don't know how much uh, of a push there would be in Luhansk. Having said that, of course, Putin has decided that the aim of this whole thing was was um, the liberation, in his words, of the Donbass. So the more territory in the Donbass that is taken by Ukraine, the more it, it just further undermines the whole purpose of this war and and then undermines Putin's position back home. So there are very legitimate reasons why you would expect Ukraine to continue to push in the Donbass, um, but also very, very real and uh, practical military reasons why that would be exceptionally hard. Um, we should also talk about Izium. So Izium to the south of the the newly retaken area. There have been many reports and um, and footage that's now on on the, on the news channels as well as social media of the excavations there of um, of mass graves. And it looks like there's over, I think the, the latest report was over 400 people found there in, in shallow graves. Uh, now, we should be slightly cautious about leaping straight to a conclusion about what this means, having seen Butcher and Erpin. Undoubtedly, some of this was illegal, uh, illegal activity by the Russian forces. I would, I think that's a fairly uncontroversial statement given what we've seen so far quite how much of it we we do not know and that's why these investigators are there and are and are taking they are going going to great pains to to catalog every everybody that they exhume um, as far as they can to try and identify the people and identify how they were killed uh, if there are, are to be any uh, war crimes um, or any, any sort of legal action after the war so that is that's ongoing work it is as um, horrific as it is expected, I think, um, and we should we should prepare ourselves for for more of those. Uh, Amnesty International uh, have um, well, let, let's let's hear live from Amnesty International about what they what they say about these latest uh, alleged atrocities. Yep, that's pretty much it from Amnesty International. Actually, they're noticeably quiet 
they have on their website, although it's not leading their website, they have got a news item about it, news item headed, as Ukraine retakes territory from Russia, securing evidence of alleged war crimes is crucial. So, I mean, c- correct. Not not particularly full-throated, not, um, not as full-throated as their report a few weeks ago, blaming Ukraine for a lot of the uh, lot of the reasons that these people were killed. Uh, Marie Struthers, Amnesty International's director for Eastern Europe and Central Asia, said, this is a quote, as Ukraine re- regains control of land occupied by Russian forces, it must prioritise securing evidence of their alleged war crimes. Gathering such evidence is extremely resource intensive, and so we are calling on the international community to provide resources that will assist Ukraine's efforts. All ongoing and future trials over alleged war crimes must meet fair trial standards. In what appears to be a response to Ukraine's military gains, Russia has launched attacks that cause significant damage to critical civilian infrastructure, including a power plant strike that led to power and water outages and disrupted civilian activities. We remind Russia that deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure may amount to war crimes. These strikes must be investigated with a view to ensuring that anyone suspected of criminal responsibility is brought to justice. So not not absolutely condemning Russia for what they have done and what they are alleged to have done with these mass killings. That's a, a fairly muted response, I would suggest, from from Amnesty International. But I suppose, I suppose it's better than nothing. But equally, I think I would, I'd, after the controversy they got themselves into before, I would like to have heard a bit more, bit more from them about uh, about what we're seeing in Izum. There's a couple of extra things I'd like to talk about as well. There's been some British military intelligence about Russian aviation. They say that Russia has likely lost at least four combat jets in Ukraine within the past 10 days. We've talked about the Russian Air Force and their capability in Ukraine from the beginning of this this conflict, noting that they, they never est- established uh, dominance in the skies. They never wiped out the Ukrainian Air Force. And we've, we've posed uh, answers as to why this is. But Dom, could you talk us through a little bit of this? Because the, the Ministry of Defence uh, think it might be because, they're, well, they're losing more planes because they're actually getting involved a bit more. And I wonder what that tells us about how the Russians are trying to react to the Ukrainian push in the east. Yes, yeah, so throughout this war, we've seen Russia really very hesitant in using air power in terms of fighter jets and bombers and what have you so crude aircraft they've preferred to stay over russian territory uh, and belarusian territory and fire missiles from there very rarely have they gone forward and if they have gone forward they've they've almost never gone ahead of their own positions so you'd expect people on the ground to have some kind of air defense umbrella that they they can put up to protect the jets and equally the jets then should be able to if they are to impose air superiority or even air supremacy when supremacy being when you own everything in the sky which is exceptionally rare to to achieve but local air superiority a, a small piece of time time and space when you when you can dominate the air you'd expect the air force to be able to do that to allow the ground forces then to move forward it's a it's a it is left hand right hand i mean you, you look after each other the, the ground force can't really move without air cover and the air cover doesn't want to go ahead unless it feels as, as if it's being supported from the ground so we've seen very little of the russian air force up to now justin bronk the uh, a chap from rusi the royal united services institute uh, in london think tank here in london he's, he's wrote a great paper about a month ago saying where where's the russian air force or why haven't we seen the russian air force i really would commend that to to people to kind of have a look at rusi's website on that but it it's been exceptionally well i mean it's been a great boon to ukraine that they've not had this that they have been able to contest the skies and they have been able to impose local air superiority where they're able to they're able to impose cost on russia of using using the sky and what it's not been able to do as as we said it's not 
Russia's not been able to provide what's called close air support, as in for troops in contact on the ground uh, to be able to bring in fast air who, you know, the jets can obviously get there very quickly and then get away very quickly. So you, you, you are, you, if you can call on fast air or, or aviation, so helicopters, are, attack helicopters to come in and, and help you out on the ground, that is a, that's a massive, a massive win for you. And, and Russia have not been able to do that or have chosen not to do it. Now, the, today's UK defence intelligence assessment says that, that, quote, there's a realistic possibility that the this uptick in losses, this recent uptick in losses of, of Russian Air Force, is is partially a result of the Russian Air Force attempting a great, att- sorry, accepting greater risk as it attempts to provide close air support to Russian ground forces under pressure from Ukrainian advances. So it sounds like they're trying to take more risk to do what they should have been doing all along and either they're unpracticed in it or they just the, if things are so fluid they're not quite sure exactly who's who and where the, where the lines on the ground are that they seem to be straying ahead of their own forces and and being shot down by by Ukrainian forces so it, it all it's unsurprising that there are these aircraft losses in a very fluid environment but it's it's really um, it, you know, there's no excuse for for not having practices, not not working together. It comes back to the the problem we saw right at the very start. Right at the start of this war, there were effectively four, Russia tried to launch four campaigns, three ground campaigns, north, east, and south, and then an air force campaign. Air force doing doing its own thing, and they just weren't joined up. There was no overall commander. They just haven't got used to working together. Uh, literally having the same radios, talking to each other, knowing where each other are operating knowing having a having a secure means of passing coordinates of who's where and where the where the free fire lines are and and uh, and safe areas and so on and so forth so russia the russian air force just hasn't been um, subsumed into this whole plan and now that they are somewhat on the back foot the pressure right now the the impetus the um, momentum is very definitely with with ukraine now's really not the time to to have to start trying to work at this this should be they should have been doing this months ago years ago this should this should be part of what they do so it's not surprising that if they're now forced to try and have a go at this close air support thingy then they're getting shot down by by ukrainian air defense and away from the air force we've also had some quite worrying news that Russian troops have struck the Pivdanovskansk uh, nuclear power plant in the south. Dom, can you tell us a little bit about this? Do you think there's a new pattern since the counteroffensive that that this the Russians think that this might be a more fruitful way to wage war? Okay, so firstly, what happened? So this is an, another nuclear power plant. I think Ukraine has five. I think so. We've been focusing recently on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Well, just to the west of that is. Uh, the other one you've just mentioned, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but in um, southern Mykolaiv region, nuclear power plant. And the uh, Energy Atom, Ukraine's state nuclear company, said that there was there were strikes about 300 metres away from the reactors, did some damage to the buildings, but the reactors are unaffected and working normally. However, it's, it's obviously not good to have any fire near these things. It comes on the back of the long-reported issues around Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and also the recent missile strikes on the uh, hydroelectric power plant uh, nearby in Kiviri, which is to the northeast of Kurzon City. So the, these seem to be, yes, this is a pattern. So that was, that was the, what's happened. This is, this is the why. That Russia are attacking elements of Ukraine's critical national infrastructure, largely from the air, either air, aircraft or missiles, uh, increasingly not precision guided missiles, sometimes 
actually repurposed. We've seen anti-ship missiles being used in these in these ways. So, I mean, it still goes bang where it lands. But if it's not if it's not designed for that job, then it's not going to be as accurate as as it sh- as it should be. So, very very worrying that Russia has has turned to this mode of warfare. Um, I mean, I will echo give amnesty is due. I'll echo what they said earlier on that that statement I I read out. And the, the more you attack critical national infrastructure when there's no obvious and proportionate military gain from it, then you're getting very close to it being argued that it could be a, a war crime. So just attacking these things for the sake of it or to to terrorise, um, and I use the word advisedly, the civilian population, um, it just shows what Russia is and what they're capable of doing right now. So what's happening? They are not counterattacking in Kharkiv and, and Kherson. They are not moving forward in the Donbass. They are not capable of moving forward, I don't think, at the moment. They are not capable of of moving forward on the ground in some combined arms way with infantry and armour talking to each other, with aviation, with engineers, with support and artillery and so on and so forth. What they've got is they can sit right back there and just lob shells around. I mean, that's all they're capable of doing right now. So this is this is a pattern that they have fallen into largely because they can't do anything else. In one way, it is helpful for Ukraine if you know what your enemy is going to do, i.e. if they are only able to chuck heavy ordnance around from many, many miles away, then knowing what they're going to do confers on you a military advantage. However, when you're talking about the targets being critical national infrastructure and especially nuclear power stations, that is not I mean, it's no cause for, for to, to relax at all. I'm not suggesting you should take these things lightly. Now, if this is all that Russia are capable of doing, then, I mean, that just says everything about the way they've waged this war and the way they've prepared for it and the way, I, the way they are now supporting it. So this is in no way a cause for celebration that this seems to be the only offensive action they're able to take because of the very obvious dire consequences that, that comes of attacking these kind of plants. But it, it speaks volumes of... Russia's position right now six what seven months into the war and whilst we've said many months ago that Russia are going to lose this war strategically it now looks like they are facing imminent defeat on the battlefield I think they might they are I think hoping for winter more much more than Ukraine right now thank you very much Dom um, we're also joined by foreign correspondent James Kiltner James there's been more high level criticism of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine within Russia. Can you talk to us about Alla Pugacheva? Sure, okay. She came out with a very strongly worded statement yesterday on Sunday, criticising the war, saying that it was a pointless waste of lives and that what Russia needed was peace, prosperity and uh, free speech, all of which are not possible under Putin's regime. Now, Alla Pugacheva is... As some would say, the most famous woman in Russia. She's certainly the most famous singer. She's famed for various Russian and Soviet sing-alongs, which have captured the popular imagination and and became tunes for generations of of Russians and Soviets. She sold something like 250 million copies of some of her songs. She represented Russia in the uh, 1997 Eurovision Song Contest. She is uh, the sort of Russia's Dolly Parton. She is a complete household name. Now, her husband, who is a Russian comic and uh, talk show host, has been anti-Putin 
and has been called a foreign agent, which is a sort of Soviet-era term that comes with all these terrible connotations. It means you're pro-West, you're a traitor to Moscow, all this sort of thing, and it makes it harder to, to get jobs, move money around, that sort of thing. And she was really putting out the statement in, in support and in defence of her husband, who he's been criticising Putin from his, uh, his home now in, in Israel. He, he left Russia like thousands of other Russians at the beginning of the war, anti-war Russians. And the point is, Ala Pugacheva can really cut through to speak to these millions of Russians who are apathetic and just don't want to know there's been some analysis done which shows that roughly 20% or, or, or thereabouts of, of Russia and of the population of Russia are pro-war. Roughly the same again is anti-war, but it's just 60% that is apathetic. They just don't want to know one way or the other what's going on. They just don't want their lives impacted, etc., etc. Which Pugacheva can really speak to, and which the Kremlin has been desperate to protect against the problems that the war has, has generated. So her coming out as an anti-war voice is incredibly important. Putin has previously been very careful to keep her on side throughout his his 22-year reign. Really, uh, he's he's you know he's given her awards. He's invited her to the Kremlin to photo up, shaking her hands, all this sort of thing. So to lose someone of that stature with that impact uh, could could potentially be a bit game changer. We we have to wait and see. And James, just from watching Russia, there's been a few moments like this in the past few weeks. Do you feel that there's a movement growing, anti-war movement, or is it? Are we still on the stage of it's? It's just high-profile people sort of coming out individually. There's there's no broad front. I think it's still very much an individual. It's it's it's, it's a sort of very fractured, fragmented uh, opposition to the war. I haven't been to Russia. I'm not in Russia. So I, I don't, I can't get on the street and, and get a taste for it from inside Russia's biggest cities. I have met plenty of Russians on my travels around Russia's borders, in Kazakhstan and 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 Moldova and, and Istanbul, etc. But I think um, the Kremlin propaganda is still strong. It's still able to deflect attention from its heavy battlefield defeats. It's only just started to mobilise volunteers in the biggest cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And even then, it's not really impacting a lot of the sort of middle-class, better-off Russians who, who are really important. Uh, I think Pugacheva's statement is really important, and the impact of that is still to be seen. I think if, if, if a couple more, if a handful of other cultural icons like her come out and uh, take an anti-Kremlin stance, that may create enough momentum to really worry the Kremlin. But at the moment, we are just seeing these fragmented voices. Thank you very much for that, James. James, your speciality, where you've been reporting from in the past few years, has been the Central Asian states. I know Dom's got lots of questions for you about recent developments there. I just wanted to ask you first, we had Natalia Vasilyeva, our Russia correspondent, who was in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, last week for the much-vaunted meeting of uh, Presidents Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping of China. Were you watching that? And what were your, did you have any takeaways from, from what happened over those two days? Yeah, I mean, incredible scenes from uh, the SCO event in Samarkand. I mean, the, the images of 
Putin having to wait for foreign leaders to turn up for photo ops and handshakes is remarkable. Uh, and we're not just talking uh, Erdogan, uh, Turkey and, and Modi, India. We're also talking uh, Sadej, a part of the Kyrgyz president who only came to power in a coup in 2020. And Kyrgyzstan is an absolutely tiny country that is you know, economically hugely dependent on Russia. And here we have this president who's been in the job for less than two years. He took it by force making Putin wait for him. I mean, I just, I, honestly, I just, I, I, I would never have imagined the day seeing the Kyrgyz president making the Russian president wait for a handshake. It's quite remarkable. And then afterwards, you have the, um, this photo op from um, all the SCO leaders, or some of the ones, uh, Xi is not there, Modi is not there. India's not actually a member of the SCO at the moment. It's a, it's a sort of observer state. But anyway... Uh, the former Soviet leaders, they're all hanging around. They've obviously been told to take the ties off, look more relaxed. There's a, a low table full of Uzbek sweets and snacks, glasses of champagne, etc., etc. And you've got Putin to one side, really. And he's just listening in, intently to Erdogan, playing very much a second or third fiddle. It was, again, a remarkable photo op, which really showed the dynamics of the meeting shifting away from Putin's orbit, you know, out, out of his control. And this is all linked to the, his, his incredibly ill-judged failed invasion of Ukraine. Just one very quick question from me, James, before I hand over to Dom. You mentioned these scenes of the leaders of the Central Asian states sort of forcing Putin to, to wait for them, as he'd done many times before to, to them. Mm-hmm. Was, was that reported at all? I mean, would, would, would people in Kyrgyzstan sort of know about this? No, no, they, 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 it wouldn't have been reported in a, it, it wasn't reported, I, d- I didn't read it in any local media, that would be too, um, too much of an affront, I think, uh, for, for the local media to shine a spotlight on this sort of thing. But the, the optics were very clear for international media to pick up on, and the message that these Central Asian presidents were giving out is that Putin and the Kremlin are a brand which we're now wary of. I think that is a huge, huge shift in dynamics in that part of the world. At the beginning of the war uh, in February, for example, one of the few countries other than Syria, you know, uh, Russian vassal state, one of the few countries to support Putin's initial invasion of Kremlin was actually Kyrgyzstan. Japarov came out. You know, he, he very much views himself as a populist, nationalist hard man. And he came out and said, you know, I support Putin's invasion of the Kremlin. He changed his mind within a couple of weeks when, when it all seemed to be, you know, changed his mind very quickly. And now here we are, six months later, he's making Putin wait. It's absolutely incredible. Well, thank you so much, James. That was really insightful. Um, Tom has got a whole list of questions he's got for you, I think. So, Tom Nichols. Uh, hi, James. It's great to have you back on. I've got a couple of questions. I will limit it to a couple of questions. About this idea, as you say, about, about brand Putin, brand Russia, that may be slightly tarnished in the in Central Asia. And firstly, we were looking at the, the the recent exchange of fire between Armenia and Azerbaijan a couple of weeks ago, which I think now is, I think a ceasefire is holding. I think there were, the last reports I saw, 135 Armenians killed, 77 Azerbaijan soldiers killed. But Armenia, very much supported by 
Russia, supportive of Russia, member of the CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization, what Russia would, would love to have us believe is a kind of NATO equivalent. But over the weekend, we saw Nancy Pelosi from, from the US in Armenia and going down brilliantly well. I even saw images of uh, well, Armenian flags being flown and, and American Stars and Stripes flying and the EU flag. So I just wondered what your, what your thoughts were on her, on her arrival. We, we've talked about how this, this kind of thing, these messages in Central Asia that, to try and sort of cleave the, some of the areas away from Russia's orbit. I just wonder what your thoughts were on and how, and how extraordinary it is, or, or maybe it's not extraordinary at all, but, but what your thoughts were on, on, on Nancy Pelosi rocking up in, in Armenia over the weekend. I mean, I think that's a great question, Dom, and I think it's really important to highlight here for listeners. The context of Pelosi's visit is incredibly important, so let's just lay it out really quickly. The fighting that broke out only last Tuesday, so six days ago, on the Azerbaijani-Armenian border was the most serious since the 2020 war over the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh when um, Azerbaijan, backed up by Turkey and its drones, and this was the first time in the conventional war we've seen the impact of, hugely successful impact of drones, forced well-dug-in Armenian soldiers out of uh, this mountainous area. Armenian troops have nearly 20 years to prepare for this war and, and they got rolled back uh, within five weeks, I think it was. And there was something like 5,000 soldiers killed on both sides. It was a, it was a horrible, horrible conflict. And, and then this, this violence last Tuesday was the most serious since then. Importantly, the violence last Tuesday didn't actually happen around Nagorno-Karabakh, which Armenia has basically conceded most of it now. They happened outside uh, this disputed region uh, along the shared Armenian-Azerbaijani border. So it was quite an unprecedented attack. So Azerbaijan alleged there's been provocations from Armenia, etc., but I think any most Western analysts, most, most sort of liberal analysts would, would d- probably discount that. You know, so why would Azerbaijan feel they can attack Armenia? Uh, the, the reason is they feel emboldened by Putin's weakness, by the weakness of Russia. Um, a Russia-imposed peace deal two years ago was meant to hold the peace, and including that peace deal was the deployment of, I think, up to 2,000 Russian peacekeepers around the Azerbaijani-Armenia border and in Nagorno-Karabakh. Also, Russia keeps one of its largest overseas bases in Gyumri, which is uh, Armenia's second city. There's a huge, basically there's a huge Russian contingent of soldiers there. Um, And yet Azerbaijan feels emboldened, backed up by Turkey at some level, to attack Armenia, to, you know, cause trouble, to give it a bloody nose, to, 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 to destabilise the country. And Putin was unable, possibly unwilling, but certainly unable to do anything about it. He couldn't, um, he couldn't afford to annoy Turkey, which has really come out of this war in Ukraine looking very strong, in the same week that, they, that all the leaders were flying off to this SCO summit in, in, in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, it's all linked. The timing is, 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 is very important. The, this fighting in the Azerbaijan-Armenia border happened two days before all the leaders were meant to be together in Samarkand. Upsteps Pelosi. She has a, a Speaker of the House of Representatives in, uh, in the United States. 
And, you know, she's obviously a tough character. She has a huge reputation of, of pushing the boat uh, for, a, uh, for a US foreign policy. She was in Taiwan earlier this year, yeah, um, against uh, annoying China, etc. And now she steps up and she, she organises a trip to Yerevan. She becomes the most high-profile and highest-ranking uh, US official to ever to visit Armenia. This is an important point. Uh, in its uh, 31 years of independence uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And she does it all very quickly. She turns up, uh, flags, uh, hundreds of Armenians lining the street. It's quite a long drive from our, uh, the airport in Yerevan to the centre. It's probably 10 miles, um, 15 miles. Uh, and then you have people lining the streets, waving US flags, cheering, etc. Remarkable scenes. Um, for 30 years... Russia has been the guarantor, allegedly, of Armenian sovereignty against uh, Azerbaijani aggression or whatever. Um, and here we have, uh, you know, real flag waving for Russia's major, you know, one of Russia's major uh, opponents, I guess is the right word. Um, and... Uh, I think, again, this could only happen because Russia's in such a muddle, the Kremlin's looking so weak, Putin's in such a defensive position, that Pelosi can turn up in Yerevan and have a meeting with the, with the Prime Minister, uh, Nikol Pashinyan, um, who, who has to be more careful. He has to be, you know, he met with Pelosi, but he has to be slightly more guarded and less sort of jubilant about the whole thing uh, in respect to his relations with the Kremlin. So, James, I saw a couple of quotes from the speaker, I guess the parliamentary speaker, Alan Simonyan, and, and I apologise if I've pronounced that incorrectly, but he said Pelosi's visit would play a big role in ensuring our security. And then in response to Armenia's appeal to the CSTO under their Article 4, which is like the NATO Article 5, the Mutual Defence Clause, uh, under their appealing to the CSTO to send troops, Russia said they would send a fact-finding team. Simonyan, sa- Simonyan said... Quote, we expect more tangible steps from our Russian partners, not just statements or half words. Now, I thought these were two very, very powerful statements. They speak right to that issue of Russia's ability to export security. But I don't know who this guy is. I don't know, don't know Speaker Simonyan. I just wonder if you could talk us through a bit of Armenian politics, how, how powerful this, this chap is, and therefore sort of take, take these statements apart and say if they, if they are a big deal or if, or if, it's, um, or if, if I'm making too much of it. Well, um, Nikol Pashinyan, the Prime Minister, is uh, very powerful in, in, in uh, Armenian politics. He came to power in a, uh, initially in a peaceful revolution in 2018 when the people of uh, Armenia really threw off the sort of pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin kleptocracy that had run the country since independence. Um, and then since then he's won a, a parliamentary election very easily. But... Uh, the 2020 uh, defeat in Nagorno-Karabakh has dented his popularity, and he has um, uh, he has faced down lots of very well uh, attended anti-government rallies. Um, the speaker will be an ally, and I think he will be speaking for Pashinyan and the government, which is very important um, because of the. I mean, Armenia is in such of precarious position, it, you know, it, it shares borders with Turkey and Azerbaijan, both of which are, are, are enemies. 
um, and also Iran and, and Georgia. Um, and it, and um, it really does look to the Kremlin, or has previously looked to the Kremlin for, uh, to defend its sovereignty and, and, and come to its aid. Um, but, you know, we've seen this week how, how, how that just didn't happen. It's all very well pushing in, uh, asking for the CSTO to come to its mutual assistance. But then in the same week, and this is really, really important, and I can't stress that enough, timings are incredibly uh, important here. Uh, these attacks happened on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. By Friday, Putin was in Samarkand having a photo op with the Azerbaijani president, Ilham Aliyev, uh, both members of the Shanghai Corporation Organization, shaking hands and smiling. It, I mean, these optics are incredibly important for national leaders. That would have played incredibly well to Azerbaijan's, uh, um, you know, domestic audience, and incredibly badly for Pashinyan. I mean, it, it really undermines Pashinyan's uh, status with people in Armenia, um, and you know, will be seen as a real snub. The next day, Pelosi turns up in Yerevan. It is incredible. It is very, very dramatic. Um, and I think um, there will be uh, some sort of shift, more of a shift towards America. There's always there's already a huge Armenian diaspora in America. Uh, you have to remember who, who fund a lot of the civic uh, groups and uh, uh, sort of charities going on in in, Ar- in Armenia. They, they are a powerful voice, um, and the CSTO has again, been shown up to be the sham that it is. Um, it's, it's sort of a Potemkin uh, military, quasi-military group, um, uh, you know, a lot like a, a lot of the military, a, lo- a lot of what Russia's about has been shown to be Potemkin in this war. It's just not what it seems. And the CSTA might strut and Peacock as being uh, uh, Russia's version of, of NATO, but it's only been deployed once in its existence, and that was to Kazakhstan in January, where Putin decided he needed to prop up um, a kleptocratic regime, uh, which was under pressure from a popular revolution. Um, and there have been multiple times, and the latest being uh, last week, Armenia, Azerbaijan on Tuesday, and since then, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, where several dozen people have been killed in fighting as well, where the CSTA has not intervened. Um, in both in- incidences and uh, over the previous 20 years, uh, there have been many more where it could have intervened and done some proper peacekeeping, and it hasn't. And I think that is uh, that really does undermine the, the, the Kremlin's lack of, of will and lack of ability to think um, outside its very narrow kleptocratic power structures. Now, James, you say that timing is important. And so, so my second question, which I think is linked to the first, um, is about timing and also takes in Kazakhstan. You say the CSGO only deployed once, that was in January, to prop up Kazakhstan. So there was a vote last week, as I understand it, in the UN a General Assembly to see whether or not they would they should allow President Zelensky to address the General Assembly by by video conference, and this was voted against by Russia, North Korea, Belarus, Syria, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Eritrea. Some some didn't vote 
uh, at all, as in did not abstain, but just didn't turn up for the vote, which includes Armenia and Azerbaijan. But some positively abstained, China, Iran, Uzbekistan, and some surprising, uh, you might say surprising countries voted in favour of allowing President Zelensky to address the General Assembly, and and Kazakhstan was amongst that. So I just wondered, does that, in terms of the timing and in terms of... Um, Kazakhstan in particular voting for this and very interestingly China abstaining and Uzbekistan abstaining. I just wondered, you know, does this tell us anything else about the shifting shifting sort of power structures and security in, in, in Central Asia? Absolutely, Dom. I think that's a really eagle-eyed uh, point you've just made. I mean, Kazakhstan voting in favour of allowing the president of a country that uh, Russia is effectively at war at to address the UN Security Council or whatever it is, the, the, the UN Council by, by video, is is remarkable. I mean, that it just shows how little or how much credibility the Kremlin has lost um, amongst the former Soviet states in Central Asia and the South Caucasus. Kazakhstan is particularly worried about Russia. It shares the longest continuous land border in the world with Russia. It's very porous. It has a huge Russian minority living in the north of the country and Russia has made, in the six months since it invaded Ukraine, Russia has made some very senior Kremlin officials uh, some very aggressive statements towards Kazakhstan. It It feels threatened and it's easy to understand why. This is a friend who has gone rogue, if you like, and they don't know what to believe anymore, what to think. And I think this is pushing them towards China and possibly towards the West. The West has a lot of ground to make up on in uh, Central Asia. It's, um, we, 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 well, the US in particular left Central Asia pretty much when it pulled out of Afghanistan in 2014 had been using Bishkek or the airbase near Bishkek as a major hub for sending in its forces into Afghanistan, as, as, as you well know, Dom. And since then, the West has been pretty pretty much ignored Central Asia. We have, the West has some major oil projects there, especially in Kazakhstan, but we have a lot of ground to make up. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what deals Kazakhstan does President Xi of China was did tour Central Asia, well, specifically Kazakhstan, prior to turning up at the SCA conference in Samarkand last week. And in uh, the now renamed capital of, of Kazakhstan, uh, Astana, renamed on Saturday from Nursultan, he did promise the Kazakh president, Tokayev, uh, various security guarantees, which again is remarkable. So here we have... Again, on the eve of this big SCO conference where Putin's meant to be the main man or one of the main men, China nips into Kazakhstan, does does some sort of security deal with Kazakhstan. I mean, you just can't imagine this was possible until this war went so terribly wrong for the Kremlin. Well, thank you very much, James and Don. We're just coming to the end of our time together now, I think. So can I just ask you both for your final thoughts? Um, Dom, would you go first? Would you just talk about, let's bring it back to Ukraine. Could you just sum up where we are across the battlefront and what our listeners should be thinking about this week? Where should we direct our attentions? Well, I think what's happening at the moment in Ukraine is that all the momentum, all all the initiative is with 
Kiev. It's up to them right now, I think, to decide where and when they push, where and when the lines end up. I don't think Russia gets a vote in that right now. They haven't got the personnel or the equipment to decide that. It's largely a, a bit of geography and mainly how tired, um, exhausted, in need of replenishment the Ukrainian forces are. So I think we will continue to see a solidifying of the new line, particularly in the north. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not Russia have had to strip anything out from the south around Kherson to, to reinforce the centre in the Donbass and the north around Kharkiv. And if so, whether Ukraine want and are able to take advantage of that and push in the south. Because don't forget that the Kazan front is still a very, very active front. There's um, there's a lot of chat on Russian telegram channels about the fighting going on down there and how it's a, it's a different war. It doesn't lend itself to a swift manoeuvre with vehicles. It's, it's, a, it's a very grinding, attritional, infantry-led war. Um, but it seems like Ukraine arm is making advances. So I think we keep an eye on where the line solidifies and and how much pressure Ukraine is still able to produce because I think they they are on the front foot and it's it's up to them to decide where this thing ends in, to, before the next operational pause, which will be um, this side of winter. Thank you very much, Tom. And James, just for our final thought today, could you sum up some of the things you've been talking about? Just give our listeners a brief overview of how the situation in Central Asia, the decline of Russian influence and the rise of the West and China is playing out thanks to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Sure. To sum up, I've been watching Central Asia and South Caucasus reporting on it for 20 years and I've, there have obviously been some very big news stories in that time but I've, I can't remember a period when there's been so many explosive crises going on in the former Soviet Union in Russia's backyard some of them are linked to the war, some of them are linked to systems that Putin set up and have collapsed. We had this uh, near revolution in January where the CSTO did deploy to prop up um, pro-Putin leadership then. We've had uh, the Tajik security forces clamping down on uh, opposition groups in the south of the country and banning... banning um, Ismaili-linked universities and cultural centres funded by the Aga Khan. We've had uh, anti-government protests in Uzbekistan in July in the remote west of the country in Karakal, Pakistan, which were unheard of. In all three of these incidences, 250 people died in Kansan, possibly the same again in Tajikistan, we're not sure, and a few dozen died in Uzbekistan. And then, like I was saying, last week we've had fighting, the worst fighting for two years on the Armenia-Azerbaijan border and the worst fighting for a long time on the Tajikistan-Kyrgyzstan border where fighting does sporadically pop up. The region is just so unstable at the moment, it's difficult to overemphasise. And we are seeing a reordering of politics, a reordering of the system as... Putin's Kremlin really starts to crumble and look unhealthy. The the power players in the region are wondering how to align themselves. They're wondering whether to take advantage of this power vacuum in the Kremlin to nail down and score some local uh, uh, victories in crushing opposition, etc., sorting out border issues. Uh, This is an incredibly unstable time for the former Soviet Union 
it's going to be very interesting how it washes out. It could get a lot worse before it gets any better. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And just a note from me, now that the funeral of the late Queen Elizabeth II has finished, we will go back to recording live on Twitter as we were before. Thank you very much for bearing with us. <laughs>